My name is JD. Um, I get the pleasure of being your executive pastor here at Mill City and uh, get to share and preach every once in a while. So I'm excited to continue our Advent series today. Uh, I asked this community time question because we were actually discussing it in the office the other day, and it made me think of all of, uh, maybe just basically think how horrible I am at this situation, because like I, I, I don't have good control over my face when this happens. Uh, I'm not a good fake smiler or all of the things you should do in these situations. Remember a particular instance, uh, uh, I, I don't get like, like group gifts that are all the same for multiple people. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Uh, my grandparents do that every once in a while, and I'm not in danger of them listening to this podcast, so I'm not concerned about telling you the story. Um, they gave, I have like a load of cousins, we got a big family, and they gave us all like the same jacket with like three different colors in it, and it was kind of like those Patagonia jackets with like the really like the fluffy ones, except for there wasn't a little, a lot of little lines. There was just like three lines, and it looked more like the Michelin tire man. Like you couldn't even like put your arms down. It kind of just sat like this. And uh, I just remember like not knowing how to respond to that, and all of us just kind of looking at each other like, thank you, I guess. Please don't tell my grandmother. She would probably just say under her breath, you ungrateful millennial. She wouldn't do that. I'm just joking. We were having this discussion in the office, and I thought Anna uh, Anderson, our family life director, had the best response for this. They came up in one of her family gatherings when they received the gift that they didn't want. He said, oh, I didn't know that I wanted this. <laughs> so use that one if you'd like over Christmas. Um, yeah, I just thought it would be a great way to uh, enter into the holidays. We're in this Advent season where we're uh, intentionally as a church pausing to anticipate the Christmas story together, focusing on different elements of it. Uh, it it's a season where we received a gift, a great one, and uh, we're going to look at elements of the story today where uh, Mary receives the news of uh, being Jesus' mother. Before we dive into the text and continue in that way, let's pray. Welcome, God, uh, into this time as we look at Scripture together. Would you join me in doing that? God, we love you. Um, we're grateful for this season of anticipation. Uh, God, I'm sure there's a lot swirling around in our lives right now before Christmas comes along. God, would you give us peace today? Would you help us to rest, um, whatever is going on, um, rest in your word, in your promises to us, in the reality of who you are. God, we pray that your presence would stay here throughout this week as these students finish up school, God. They're probably going to be anxious. They're probably going to be ready to get out of here. But God, would you have peace reign in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this series has been really great. I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the first two sermons of this. They're Really awesome. The first one, we had a guest speaker, Joe Saxton, come, and we gave her the genealogy as a text, and she rocked it. It was really good. And then Steph last week talked about uh, the story of Elizabeth uh, and Zachariah receiving the news and receiving uh, their child, John. And the story we're going to look at today is actually interwoven with that story itself. But before we get into it, I just want to ask you this question. How have you been this year? How has this year been for you? We're getting towards the end of it here, and as you reflect back, how, how does the feeling of the year feel to you? As we were discussing this sermon series, we kind of had this sense that people may be tired, 
People may have uh, lives that may be full of uncertainty, have had to juggle a lot of tension this year. How does this year feel to you? For me, I've, I, I feel that. I resonate with that sentiment. I feel a little tired. There's some uncertainty in my life, and I'm longing for a little bit of peace in this Christmas season. I think the characters that we've encountered in the stories we've looked at have encountered different uncertainties, and how they respond to those uncertainties or news that's unexpected, I think can really inform how we are this Christmas or how we can be this Christmas. So we're going to look at, look at Luke 1, 26 through 56, and we're going to jump around a little bit in there. But before we jump to the text, let me, let me talk a little bit about Mary. Because when I say Mary, uh, she's one of the most famous figures in our faith, right? Really venerated in some traditions. She's so highly, highly respected. So her story, depending on your own transi- uh, uh, tradition, uh, you might have a wildly different perspective than the person sitting next to you about Mary. Now, let me just say that this morning and how I approached this text in my preparation is I kind of wanted to look at it with fresh eyes. I kind of wanted to enter into this story when it occurs to understand what Mary as a human being was going through in this experience. So in that vein, let me just give you a couple tools to maybe embody that same lens as we look at this story. Mary was probably 12 or 15 years old when this occurs. She was just a teenager. She had no seeming family significance. Like she didn't have, we can't tell from the text that she had a lot of status or her family had a lot of status. The text that we'll read says she's betrothed or pledged in the version that we're going to read. Let me explain that a little bit. When young girls would reach a certain age, their fathers had the decision who they would pledge them to be married to. And that was, in that day and age, actually a transaction. That was like they received payment for pledging their daughters to a certain individual. So just try to wrap your head around that for a second. I know it's the custom of the time, but it's still a practice that seems so foreign to us and seems so restricting and horrible, frankly, as I think about it. So here's a girl who's right in the middle of that. Her father's decided for her who she's going to be married to and probably has received payment for that transaction. And so she's in this space between where that's occurred, the marriage hasn't been consummated yet. They haven't gotten married yet. She's from a small town. She's from a rural area. She's not from the epicenter of culture. And that space is under, or under occupation of the Roman environment. So it's a tough time to live in that space, in that rural area. So take that into the reading of this text as you understand Mary and how she's experiencing what's about to happen next. Let's read the, uh, the text together. We're going to take the first chunk here. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, remember these stories are interwoven from last week, God sent an angel Gabriel to uh, Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. An angel went to her and said, Greetings! You are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Let me just pause. That word greeting actually means rejoice. So this is like someone surprising you going, surprise, be happy, and you're terrified because they just popped out of somewhere and scared you. So let's continue. Mary, reasonably so, is greatly troubled at these words and wonders what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid. 
That's a tough sell. Mary, you have, been, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Then Mary asks a very practical question. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come over you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive in her, is now in her sixth month. For no word from God ever will ever fail. Let's just pause right there and soak up this story. So here's this teenager who has an angel appear to her and give her this news. So let's just try to understand how Mary might have processed this information. This was probably one of those moments where she's receiving a gift she didn't expect or didn't want. So I don't know if you've ever heard some stunning news in your life and you just kind of got paralyzed. I imagine Mary's going through that right now emotionally. She's probably stunned at this news. This is coming out of nowhere. And let's just think through the implications real quick that are probably racing through her head as the angel is speaking. This ruins her betrothal. This just totally ruins it. Because she immediately thinks the way this is going to happen, people are going to think that I uh, had extramarital relations before I got married to Joseph. Joseph has now has grounds, probably, to end it, to divorce. Or if he sticks with it, this will be a shame over their head for the rest of their lives. She'll always have the identity of people whispering her, about her and how this first baby came about her whole life. Surely she'll be rejected by her family because of the implications of this, in the immediate sense. We know that she has uh, goes to other family because she goes to Elizabeth right after this in their family. But it's really interesting if you skip forward to Luke 2 and the birth story, where is her family then? Just think about that. They end up in a stable, in a manger. Usually in a birthing situation in that culture, everybody's in town. Everybody's in town to help with that, and they're alone doing that themselves. I think that's just evidence of the implications to come of this news. And beyond that, she's a teenager. Do you remember being a teenager? <laughs> you remember how consumed you were with your identity? Consumed with what people thought of you and the trajectory you're on, and everybody always asked you that annoying question, what are you going to do with your life? You know, Mary probably had constructed for herself a pretty good life that was, she was looking forward to. She was marrying up in this situation. Uh, Joseph was a descendant of David. She was marrying up into a more prestigious family. Not that much more prestigious. They're still probably lower middle class, but she's still doing well for her time. And then this news comes. And then let's just zoom out for a second and look at the bigger picture of Israel's story and the implications of this. Mary, who's a faithful person who worships God, totally gets her image of God rocked in this moment, I think. Because everybody expected for the Messiah, the one to come who would bring salvation, to come from a prestigious family, from royalty. And here she is, this lowly teenager who's betrothed to a 
lower middle class person in an occupied space in Podunk, Nazareth, who gets this news. And the angel is addressing her like royalty. And she's nothing close in the, in the eyes of the world. It's pretty shocking. And what I think Mary has to come to grips with in this moment is that God's not following the script that she thought he would follow in the redemptive history of his people. God's not interested in following the script. This child should have been born to a different family with more prestige, and she's probably feeling the shock and awe of this news. What we see in Mary is what we've been saying this whole Advent series. God uses the least likely people in the least likely ways. And in this moment, Mary is encountering that in a way that will change her life and the world forever. This is what God does, though, because it's who God is. This is a part of how he operates in the world and has from the beginning of time. And Mary has to think that. You go back to David. He was the youngest person in a shepherd family, and God said, he's going to be our king. Moses, a guy who couldn't even speak well in public, God said, you're going to be the one to lead my people out of Egypt. I like to think he was the first uh, dyslexic hero in the Bible, because I'm dyslexic, and I think that's pretty cool. And Jonah, a cranky, apathetic, skeptical preacher, tries to run away from God, and God still uses him to save the people uh, that he's preaching to. Ruth, a foreigner, a refugee. Esther, a woman of, in a minority culture uh, of an oppressed government. Abraham and Sarah, who have the same story as Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age conceiving a child that will give birth to this nation of Israel. This is just what God does. This is who God is. God engages with those on the margin as integral parts of his salvation history. God saves the world through these people. Where the world sees vulnerability, he sees strength. And that's what's happening right here in this story. And I think we ought to think about, we're always asking the question, what is God doing? What is Jesus doing? And how should we respond to that? I think it's really important to look at Mary's response to who God is and what he's doing in this time to know what we ought to do in response to following this God who's unpredictable, who always uses the, or often uses the least likely and the least likely ways. So I want to look at verse 38 because this is her response to this whole ordeal. She has, she has two phrases to say to this situation and a way to say to God. In verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left. I think there's two very important phrases. Let's focus on them for a second. The first one, I am the Lord's servant. This is an identity statement. This is Mary claiming her identity as a child of God. And we need to notice how that transcends every identity everybody else in her life has given her. You need to realize that they've determined her identity for her. They've betrothed her to a, a, a man that maybe she knew well. Everybody in her life has told her who she should be, who she ought to be, and now she's claiming who she really wants to be and who she sees herself to be. And that's someone who's a part of God's family. And that's a foundational for thing. That's the first step she takes in response to this news is say, I am a part of God's family. And therefore, the next phrase, she says, may your word be fulfilled to me. I love this. I love this because she doesn't say, I can do this. <laughs> she says, 
may God's word be fulfilled. This is a statement of trust in God, not necessarily a statement of trust in the situation. I'm sure she's afraid. I'm sure she's really afraid. But she has the courage in this moment to say, I trust that God will do what he says he's going to do. And I've heard him. Her response is faithfulness. It's not confidence in herself. It's not just shut out the emotions and just bear through it. It's faithfulness to who God is. That's what it means to be a part of God's family. So I turned 30 in February, which is sort of a big deal, I guess. Oh, thanks for your applause. That's, yeah. That makes me feel so much secure about that transition in my life. So I've done the 20s, you know. Uh, they say these days, hashtag adulting. That was the last 10 years of my life. So I guess the next stage is pro-adulting, I guess they say, um, as I've heard it said. And I've learned a few things in my 20s, and I'd like to impart them to you. If you're, I'm being over the top, sorry. There's a myth in my 20s that I've identified, and it's that I very often fall into the myth that I define my identity by what I accomplish and what I have. I think life sometimes is about defining my identity by what I accomplish and what I have. That's the enemy or the antithesis of Mary's response to God in this moment. Mary's response to God in this moment is, I'm a part of your family. That's what defines me most. Not what other people perceive as success and security in my life. My identity in God's family transcends that. The second thing I've I've noticed about the 20s is there's a strong temptation to exert my energy, energy towards security and success, like I was just saying, towards making more money, towards having things where I can control my life and not be exposed to risk or unexpected things. And that's different than what Mary's saying in this moment. She's saying, this is risky. This is different. But I will be faithful to you. And I've noticed something. I've noticed something in my 20s as well. When I have the posture like Mary had in response to what God's doing, when I remember that at my base self, I'm a child of God that's fully accepted by God, and when my response is faithfulness, not skepticism, when my response is faithfulness instead of trying to find security in other things other than what God has said in my life, I notice that I can see the world differently. It changes who I am. I begin to be able to see the way that God sees the world. I, be able to, I begin to be able to see like God does and see strength in the vulnerability of others. I begin to look at the vulnerability of my own lives, the insecurities that I have, the hesitations that I have, and see those as spaces where God continually uses strength, like a dyslexic person standing up here and preaching to you. I love Mary's response later in this. It's common for women in this time when they receive the news of being pregnant or having a child to say a, a blessing over the child's life. Instead, later on in this text, Mary uh, sings a song, and it's really a prophetic song. So instead of a blessing, she gives a prophecy. And I, I think, as I understand it, as a, a, someone who studies scripture, this may not have been the words that came out of her mouth in that moment. I think it's more of a, a consolidation of what she's experienced and grown to over her whole life. 
And she's expressing in this moment these words, and I want to read them to you, and they're in the form of a song. And notice how she sees differently from this experience in her life. Mary says this, My soul glorifies the Lord. Now think of all the experiences that Mary has had. It glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things in me, for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, for generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised to our ancestors. Mary, in these circumstances, is able to see who God is, a God who continuously moves to those on the margins and uses the least likely people in the least likely ways. If I were to sum up what I think I'm learning from Mary in the story, it would be this. When we find peace in our identity as God's children, and we trust him even when we don't trust the circumstances, it opens our eyes to see the world the way God sees the world, seeing strength in vulnerability. To kind of end our time, I thought I'd do this sort of creatively, I brought uh, a piece of artwork for us to look at and reflect on. So if you could put that up on the screen. I know it's a little dark, but uh, anybody know what's going on here? This is a everyday or ordinary time or, or current time rendering of Joseph and Mary's story. It's called Jose and Maria. This is a graphic artist from Portland named Everett Patterson who has in his own way depicted what it would be like for them to live today. And I've, I, I really love this image. And it, I know uh, the screen's not big enough, so I zoomed in a little bit there. Maria's sweatshirt says, Nazareth High School. There's all these little quirky, biblical, nerdy things in here. But I don't think that's really the point. As I was reading uh, how this artist crafted this graphic, uh, the most important thing to him was the perspective. He said he drew this from a privileged perspective, a perspective of passing by. This might be something we see ordinarily as we live in the city, and we might pass by it without any thought, as I'm sure people pass by Joseph and Mary as they were on their way to give birth to Jesus. But as we look at this scene in our own sort of cultural lens, we have to realize, friends, today, this is how God saved the world. You see how vulnerable this looks. How we would pass this by, how we wouldn't give much value to this scene. How we maybe would cast pity and nothing else and just go about our day. This is a depiction of people in the midst of changing the world. Now, do you understand what I mean when we're able to identify ourselves as God's family? 
when we're able to see with the eyes that God sees, we're able to see strength in that vulnerability, in that story. So my question for us as Mill City is, are we willing to take on that identity as God's children? Are we willing to give him our faithfulness? If we are, I think we can open our eyes to see these scenes on our street as strength, as opportunities to see what God is up to, to participate in his continued redemptive, salvific, salvation work in the world today. So I want to invite the communion service to come up. I want to invite the band to come up. What I'd like you to do is sit and maybe think about this, uh, this image. I have a couple questions for you to consider as you're looking at this image. The first one is, do you resonate with the vulnerability in this picture? Maybe this year uh, can, uh, of yours can resonate with the vulnerability in this picture a little bit. Maybe you're feeling a little bit of the downtroddenness of this photo. And maybe sit in that a little bit. Or think about, what, is this a scene that you would pass by quickly like me and not be able to respond or think much of? And think about that. Think about how God might want to change our eyes to see his world that he loves differently, to see the stories that he's writing that people may not recognize because we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what a God who uses the least likely people in the world is doing. Let's pray, and I invite you to come forward. The, the communion bread's gluten-free. You can dip it in the juice as you come by. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's the leader and the savior of your life, you're invited to participate. You don't have to be a member of this church. Let's pray. God, you came to us in the most humble of ways to save us, God. In a way, we recognize our own humility in that story, our own desperate need for your power and salvation in our lives. God, as we reflect on your sacrifice, Jesus, as we reflect on you as the center of everything, God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all the ways that you're seeing strength and vulnerability in our world. We want to be the people who participate in that, like Mary was willing to be a participant, God. We love you and we worship you through this act. In Jesus' name. May you receive God's invitation to participate in what he's doing and let his light shine through you to this world that desperately needs peace and hope. May you go in peace. Merry Christmas.